it's, uh, again, pretty fitting. Uh, John, you, you lined these up perfect today. That we're talking about what is moving us and what we desire to move. Because that's what we're going to be seeing here today in Matthew 27. Uh, last week we got to do the fun little exercise. Well, I hope you guys thought it was fun. I gave you all the scripture and I had you circle and underline and highlight and color and all those different things. Um, uh, I did not print it out again for you this week. So slightly a a little bit of a bummer. But we're going to be getting to do some similar things because what what I was feeling coming out of last week, you know, we talked about how pretty much what is God's kingdom founded on, right? We said his kingdom is founded on his word. His word comes from his nature, which then ultimately means it's not about us. So we got to see how, you know, Jesus holds God's word and God's nature together. So when God's kingdom comes, it it has both those things together. But it kind of leaves us with the question, how do I know if what I'm thinking or if what I'm doing or if if what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing, how do I know if I'm living in this this kingdom, right? How can I tell if I'm being motivated, if I'm being prompted to go and do something because of God's word or because of God's nature? And this this chapter 27, we're not we're not going to cover all of it. I'm not going to give you guys, you know, a, a million verses in back-to-back weeks. But what's going to happen in chapter 27, kind of everything comes to a head. Right? This is where you know, all of the different things, if you kind of picture you're getting closer and closer to the center of a, or I guess to the point of a tornado where stuff is swirling around in the periphery and now we, we're getting really close to the middle uh, and actually we kind of find ourselves there today. This is where we're going to see Jesus kind of, uh, well, eventually everything leading up to his crucifixion. But just like when you, when you get in the thick of the action, people's hearts start to show themselves. What we're going to watch for today as I read chapter 27 for you is listen to the different groups of people and why they do what they do, okay? So we're going to hear about Judas. We're going to see the chief priests and the elders are going to show up. Uh, We're going to see Pilate comes into play. Uh, The guards come into play. And then you'll see Jesus and his disciples. And I know this is probably text many of you might be more familiar with if you've been in church around Easter. You've probably heard these events, okay? Just like last week, rather than me trying to sift out, you know, the little details of why the events took place the way they did, remember, we're reading a book written by an author that had something he was trying to get across, So Matthew, in his details and the things that he gives, it looks a little bit different than some of the other Gospels. Matthew's trying to clue us in on something, okay? So as I read this, listen to each of those different groups, where they show up, and try and see if you can spot why do they do what they do. What is motivating them in that moment, okay? So let's start with verse 1, and then uh, as I read, I may pause and say, okay, now let's... Let's listen to this group here. So let's, let's pick up the story, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now here comes Judas. See if you can hear. Well, we're going to see Judas and the chief priests together. See if you can hear what motivates them. Then when Judas, his betrayer... 
or his being Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Okay. So, there's Judas. There's the chief priests. Now let's, let's see Pilate. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, this being Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he, Jesus, gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And now, we'll watch Pilate and the chief priests. Now, at the feast of the governor, uh, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, "Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ?" For he knew that it was out of envy that they, being the chief priests and the elders, had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now we're going to be introduced to the guards. Let's hear what they, why they do what they do. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And they put over his head, they, 
Over his head, they put this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, Well, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And now, let's watch Jesus and his disciples' reactions to this. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Father, as we have been working through the story of who Jesus is and what you've sent him to do, God, throughout this entire gospel of Matthew, we've seen your Holy Spirit at work and we've been able to look and see what it looks like when we're filled with the Spirit living for you. Father, we've seen time after time after time again all these things about who Jesus is, Father, and we know that we have been made in your image, so we are taking up his cross. We're living like him. And as we've been getting to the end of Matthew, Lord, we've been seeing all of these details about what is your kingdom, God? What is it about? What does it come to do? Father, this, this moment right here when we're watching all of these things come to a head, it really reminds us God, not just of what are, what are you about and what are all the things you're trying to do, but how you work in us. Father, we confess to you today, we know you desire to do a work, not just in us, but in this church, in the New River Valley, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, in the United States of America, 
and all across the world, Father, you are at work. And we talk a lot about wanting to join you in your work. And Father, we know that to join you in your work means you often have to change our hearts. You often have to take thoughts out of our head, replace them with things of you. You you have to tune us in to your spirit. And Father, I, I've, I have seen and observed, although I know that there are many in this church who have even lived it much stronger than I have, of people who will twist you, who will tell people that something is of you when it really is not. Father, that there are many in this room who have walked who have been shepherded, who have been guided, who have just seen and heard, not just leaders here, leaders around the world who will claim things to be from God. And then they watch it and they see there's no way that can look like him. Father, as we have been seeing who you are and what you are about, may you just remind us again this morning of how you work in us. In your name we pray. Amen. There's two big things in here I want us to notice, guys, before we get to how he does work, about how he doesn't. Because there there are ways that you and I tend to operate in the kingdom that sometimes we put on God and say that must be him at work in us uh, that really just isn't, isn't there, okay? And I think it's cool that we get to see this in some of the groups uh, that are showing up here in chapter 27. So we're going to be talking about how does God motivate us in his kingdom. First, by looking at one of the things he doesn't do, okay? The first one, if we look at Judas and we look at Pilate, God does not motivate us through guilt, okay? Just wherever you are at. When God shows up to do a kingdom work in you, it is not a work of guilt. Let's see why, okay? Notice the details uh, when we get to Judas. Judas is in verses 3 through 5, right? Just three short verses. But notice what Matthew tells us about Judas in here, okay? We see that Judas is labeled the betrayer. (laughs) So not a great title to start with, but it kind of clues you in that Judas is one who's trying to play two sides of the fence, and he's about to realize he can't do that anymore, okay? So Matthew calls Judas the betrayer. He sees, he notes that Judas watches Jesus get condemned to death. He realizes and says in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then he, he tries to give the money back, and then ultimately he ends up hanging himself, okay? What is Judas motivated by here? What is, what's happening to Judas? If you had to sum it up in one word, I hope you guys would have caught it. It's guilt, right? Judas is feeling the overwhelming guilt of, oh my gosh, look at what I have done. And that's, notice what guilt does to Judas right here, right? Verse 3, we see it, it says it changed his mind. It's one Greek word called metamelomachi which almost sounds like it could be a Hawaiian word. Metamelomahi is to care afterwards, that he looks back on something and says, ooh, I did the wrong thing. 
right? So Judas is able to, as he's feeling this guilt, he recognizes he's done the wrong thing. But notice what changed his mind, verse 3. It's when he's watching Jesus be condemned. He's realizing he's done the wrong thing, and it says he changed his mind, right? Not the Lord. Not that God came in and did something, and there's no conviction. There's no spirit movement. Judas changes his mind. His guilt changes his mind. And out of that, he doesn't actually end up ever going to seek God. Judas feels guilty, so he changes his mind, and then Judas attempts to step in and fix Judas's problem himself, right? Judas goes and says, well, maybe if I give the money back, things can be different. He's, he's racked with guilt. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, and then he gets probably the worst possible response from those in the temple. <laughs> what do we care? That's not our problem. That's yours, Judas. When you're feeling guilty and you go to someone and you try to work through it, and they say, well, what do I care? That's not my problem. That is not what you hear. It's not what you want to hear. And what happens to Judas when he's filled with guilt, he's acting out of his guilt, he's not going to God. He tries to fix his own situation. When that doesn't work, where does that lead him? Right? It leads him to take his own life. Clearly, if this is kind of the pattern that guilt takes us on, it would be safe to say that that's not how God works with us, right? That when God shows up to do a kingdom work in you and your heart to join you into the work he's doing, it is not going to be through guilt, okay? If, if what guilt is doing is taking our focus off of God to try to make us fix things ourselves and then ultimately it gets us so desperate that we're ending up taking our own lives, then guilt is not a motivator that God uses. But it's not just Judas. Let's look at Pilate, okay? And Pilate, Pilate and Judas are kind of two sides of, the, of, of a similar thing with guilt. Pilate, or Judas, is, is guilty because of what he's done. Pilate is kind of operating under this, I don't want to be guilty, right? Judas feels bad for what he's done. Pilate says, I don't want to end up doing the wrong thing. So he's trying to avoid being guilty. He's still motivated by guilt. Watch his Pilate, verse 11. He avoids directly charging Jesus, right? He says, if I'm not the one that says Jesus is the bad guy, then, then they can't tell me, right, that I was the one that said that. He asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews. Verse 13, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate saying, it's not me telling you those things. Do you hear Jesus? What do you think, Jesus? His wife tells him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Verse 19, this, um, <laughs> just another example in scripture of husbands, why you should listen to your wives. Here is a direct counsel coming from God to Pilate, through his wife. And Pilate, so guilty of, I don't, I don't want to do the wrong thing here. What he does is he sticks to this cultural custom that they already have in place. You know, if, if, if he wipes his hands of Jesus, he says, well, I think I've got another way I can get around this. Right? Pilate says, thank you, wife of mine, for sharing me what you saw in the dream. I know what I'm going to do. And Pilate has this scheme. There's this man who's been in prison named Barabbas, and the other Gospels tell us Barabbas is in prison because he tried to 
get a bunch of Jews together to overthrow Rome. And Pilate says, well, rather than just set Jesus free, here's what I can do. So that it's not me setting Jesus free and doing the wrong thing for the crowd. I'll make the crowd choose. Do they want harmless Jesus who's not threatened Rome, who, yeah, his teachings don't maybe line up, but, you know, you Jews, I don't really understand your religion anyways. It's just one guy. How big of a pull can he have? Or do you want Barabbas who was disgraceful, who was ugly, who failed <laughs> at what he tried to do. Pilate says, I, out of trying to not do the wrong thing, I think I've got this nailed out. And unfortunately, the crowd calls out Pilate's bluff. They say, give us Barabbas. And I love, rather than go to God, I mean, we see multiple times it says that Pilate seeks the crowd. Right? Verse 22, he says, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they say, let him be crucified. And then when he asks the crowd, what evil has he done? You know, well, why does this guy deserve it? The crowd again yells, let him be crucified. So what does Pilate do? He washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You do whatever you want. Right? Pilate, I mean, it's almost ironic how Pilate is working so hard to avoid being the one that you could put the guilt on. He's working so hard, you could say, to avoid doing the wrong thing. He hands Jesus over to be killed. Whether it's Pilate trying to not do the wrong thing, or Judas feeling bad because he's done, in his mind, the wrong thing, both of them are being driven by guilt. Both of them never seek God, they both say, I can, I can figure out a way to fix this on my own. And both times, some, someone ends up dead. Life ends up being snuffed out as a result. Suffice to say, church, if we're thinking about, man, is, is what I'm feeling in my heart or what I'm thinking about in my head, is this something God is giving to me to go do for his kingdom? If it is coming from a place of guilt then it's probably not of God. The second motivation that it's definitely not that God uses in his kingdom is God doesn't use pride to motivate us in his kingdom. Let's watch the, uh, the chief priests and the elders, probably my favorite people to watch. If you pick them up in verse 1, verse 2, we're told they want to put Jesus to death, okay? So that's their underlying motivation. We talked a little bit last week about why that might be the case, right? Essentially, they're preserving their own little kingdom. So they're already, we're kind of told right off the bat, hey, <laughs> these guys are prideful. But notice what comes up. I, I love Verse 6, right, when Judas throws the money back at them, and then he goes and hangs themselves, the chief priests, they pick up the silver and they say, well, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So let's, they took counsel, again, not from God, they just talk about themselves and say, what do you think we should do with this? And they bought the potter's field. This is, this is amazing to me. Because the chief priests and the elders are able to look at their money and they say, ooh, this has definitely been used for something bad. We should probably not use this or make sure it can be traced back to ourselves. 
Why? Because we're the chief priests. We're the good guys. We, we are the ones who do the right thing. So let's just kind of discreetly take care of it on the side. Let's, uh, <laughs> as, as I've been told people still do today, let's take our, our money and just go invest it in, in real estate over here. That way it can't actually be you know, traced back to us, anything. They are, they are so incredibly prideful in their position as the ones who are the righteous, as the, the good guys in the story, they recognize, oh, this thing is a bad thing over here. we got to get that as far from us as possible. And if you look at verses 11 through 26, it's, it's really interesting that the priests and the elders kind of do the same thing as Pilate. Right? They also don't want the decision to kill Jesus traced back to them. We don't see this here in Matthew, but the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John tell us that the priests and the elders brought Jesus before Pilate. I think, I'm, I'm speaking out of my memory so I could be wrong, but I think they bring him to Pilate, then they bring him to Herod, then they bring him back to Pilate. They, they bring him to the Romans several times. Why? Because they want Rome to give them the okay to sign off. On this, kind of as a as a similar way, a Abigail and I have a a little rule in our house where I won't pick up open bus shifts because it's you know it often takes more time away from being at the house or, or being at the kids. So I won't tell her, "Hey, I really want to pick up this open shift." I'll go to her and I'll say things like, "Hey, there's a shift that's open at this time," and we don't have anything going on at this time, right? Is there something going on I'm not remembering? Yeah, essentially, I have to go through all the little reasons of, I think it'd be okay to do this, right? Like, can you, can you picture a way where this wouldn't work? And then she says, yeah, I guess that could work. Okay, good, thank you. You've given me permission. Now I can go do this, right? This is exactly what the chief priests and the elders are doing. They don't want to be the ones that said, we killed Jesus. They want Rome to give them the permission so that they can remain righteous, right? But what do they do? Verse 18, Matthew tells us, it, Pilate knows it's out of envy that they delivered him up, right? Envy comes from the Greek word phthanos, which is simply jealousy, right? You're comparing your works to somebody else. Jesus is threatening your prideful way of life, so you got to get rid of him. And so what do they do in verse 20? They persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Basically, they give their, their argument in a proxy. You know, they, they start going out and saying, man, man, have you guys heard about this Jesus and the things he's done? Do, do you really think he should live? Like, it sounds like he's threatening us. Maybe, what do you think? Do you think he should be put to death? And somebody in the crowd goes, oh, yeah, yeah, he should. Yeah, let's go do that. I mean, that's, that is the level to which the chief priests and elders are stooping so that all the responsibility doesn't come back on them. So working to preserve their pride, they're going to get everybody else to do their dirty work. And it culminates in verse 25 with this wild, wild statement. All the people, right? So the priests and the elders, everybody's in there. His blood be on us and on our children. So spun up in their pride that they are willing to look the Son of God in his face and say, we want you dead and we want to be held responsible for putting you there. Right? I mean, we talk in church about pride being a bad thing. 
But I don't know if we realize that it's pride that puts us in the place where we are looking at God saying, your blood, not only be on my hands, but be on the hands of my children and the ones who come after me. What, I mean, that is, that's mind-blowing, church. That we would feel comfortable to look at God and say, whatever you are attempting to do, I'm going to put a stop to it. And yeah, hold me responsible. Even hold my kids responsible. There's a lot of pride in the chief priests and the elders. There's also a lot of pride in the soldiers. Right? They, they mock. If you look at verses 27 through 37, they mock Jesus. They beat Jesus. They spit on Jesus. And the phrase that keeps coming up is they keep calling him and making sure everybody knows he's the king of the Jews. Right? They're standing there saying, well, we are... Uh, we're the soldiers, right? We're Romans. We're citizens of, of the earthly king, the powerful king. Who's this guy? And does this guy really think he can be king? No. They're prideful in their position as these soldiers. And then they even take it a step further. If you look at 38 through 44, not only are they comfortable to mock Jesus being some, some sort of pitiful, failed earthly king, they mock his divinity. They say, if you're the, really the son of God, do blank. If God really loves you, let him do blank. Right? If you, really, <laughs> if you really are who you say you are, Jesus, should you not be able to do blank? It, it is amazing in this chapter the number of times you see pride in who someone is. Not only just pits them against God, but again and again and again. And again and again, our pride pits us against God. And really, when you think back to last week, when God is saying, hey, my kingdom is founded on my word and founded on my nature, right? The things that I have said, who I am, <laughs> which means it's not about you. We're now seeing what it looks like when we're motivated about us, okay? Because really, guilt and pride are two sides of the same coin. Because when the kingdom is about you and the kingdom's about your work, right, then we either feel bad over what we've done or we feel, we feel you know, I, I don't want to do the wrong thing or we feel so prideful in what we've done. And all of this is all centered on us. God does not use guilt and God does not use pride to work in his kingdom. What he does use is something else. Let's look at Jesus and his disciples. Now again, remember I, I said Matthew has a point to what he's saying and why he's saying it. If you read the other gospel accounts of this, you're going to notice Jesus says a lot of different things along the way. Matthew only records Jesus speaking twice. Maybe a little asterisk and you could say three times. But Matthew is choosing very carefully. There's only two points he records Jesus talking. The first is in verse 11. When Jesus is accused of being the king of the Jews before Pilate, he just says, you have said so. Right? Jesus knows everyone around him is either filled with guilt or filled with pride right now. And Jesus knows <laughs> it's not worth my time. I'm not going to be able to, to work 
with those who are filled with guilt and those who are pride. I know that they're not able to see and listen. And I love because Jesus could have called it out right then and there. He could have said, you're acting out of guilt. You're acting out of pride. Let me show you the perfect theological argument as to why you're doing, why this is wrong. And yet, going back to last week, he knows God's word. So he knows what needs to take place. He knows God's nature, right? He knows not only what is God trying to accomplish, but how is God trying to accomplish it. So Jesus knows what is more effective here to change the heart. If I can perfectly argue every which way that their pride and their guilt is wrong, or if I let them kill me. If I let them make me a sacrifice for their sin. See, Jesus knows what's coming. But he knows that because he has been seeking God's presence the entire time. You may, you may not remember because we talked about a loss last week. But what happened before all of this? Jesus went to the garden to pray in Gethsemane. So before Jesus steps into all this whirlwind of chaos, he's prayed. He has sought the Father. And so he sees right here in the midst of people being stirred up by pride, being stirred up by guilt, what is the right response? We're not messing with it. We're going to let them go through and do what they do because it's going to lead to something greater. And then Matthew doesn't record Jesus speaking again until verse 46. Where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the little asterisk, verse 50, it says Jesus cried out again. And he yielded up his spirit. Why does Matthew skip all the way to this point? Because when Jesus cries out, it implies submission. He says, my God, my God, this is not about me. I'm not able to do this. You are God. You are my God. And it implies a desire to be with him. Right? When Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? He says, God, this entire time I have just wanted to be with you. Why have you forsaken me? What does God use to motivate us in his kingdom? Church, he uses our seeking his presence. It's not our guilt. It's not our pride. It's just when we want to be with him, he takes that and he runs with it. Because notice what happens as a result of Jesus desiring to be in God's presence. We see life. Verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which is the big symbol of God saying the veil between me and my people is now gone. In Jesus, we have a way to be made right with God. Verse 52, the Jesus' power over the grave is revealed and literally tombs opening and bodies coming back to life. Okay, The dead are being raised. Right? Life. Life is taking place. Verse 54, now the centurion, when he's watching these things, even he... A Roman soldier is able to say, wow, this really must have been the Son of God all along, right? Even now, he has an understanding of what life looks like. I love this. When Jesus shows us 
to seek God, life happens. And even, even in verses 57 through 61, right, it, it, there's a big contrast because Mark, or Matthew's now recording, there's these followers of Jesus, primarily women, who have stuck with Jesus the entire time, right? His disciples, the 12, they're far gone. Right? Their whole time, they were, they're either motivated by guilt, what's going to happen to me if they figure out, you know, I was with Jesus, right? Or they're motivated by, by pride. Peter's saying, no, I was not with Jesus. Do not put me in the same camp as them. There's a group here, though, that doesn't have pride, that doesn't have guilt, and they're with Jesus. And I love this because even as they're with Jesus, this is not like a happy, happy, joy, joy time with Jesus. Jesus is dead. And yet they still desire to be with him, even when he's dead. They are watching him be crucified. They're going and asking Pilate for his body. They're saying, just, I don't even care if his body is dead. Still give me my Lord. Still give me my Savior. Jesus' prayer is not perfect, right? Why have you forsaken me? Is not maybe a model prayer that you want to say, ah, Jesus is talking about how, how good it is to be with the Father. This is not a happy moment when they're having to tend to the dead body of this one who was supposed to be their Messiah. And yet, I mean, we know it's coming next week. But when they are seeking God, they find life. And so where we land with this this morning, church, I, I just want to offer to you, I feel like, and this, I could be totally off on this, but I would not be surprised if many of the things we do for faith today, typically, and it might not be completely, but there's a little bit of guilt or a little bit of pride in what we do. Pride in saying, well, I've been able to do these things, or I know I'm supposed to do these things, and I have to keep up the appearance, and so I'll go do it. Or the guilt in saying, man, I don't want to do the wrong thing, so I should probably do something for God. Or guilt to say, man, there, were, there was so much of my life where I couldn't do something, or I just feel like I was, I was so far wrong at that point, I need to make up for it. And I don't want to read my, my personal experience to you guys, but I can tell you I have never been guilted into the kingdom. Right? That nobody has ever come to me and made me feel so bad about what I did or what I have done or what I wasn't doing that it made me go, oh, you're right. Let me, let me now actually go change and follow Jesus. Right? Guilt may drive me to confess that I was doing the wrong thing. But as far as actually changing my heart and leading me to live more like Jesus, guilt's never done it. And neither is pride, right? If I'm listening to someone talking about all the things that are taking place in them because of all the things God's doing in their life, if it's motivated me to do anything, it's probably either been guilt, man, I should be more like them, or comparison, oh, I bet I could do that, right? Pride and guilt don't motivate into the kingdom, they don't, and, and it, I, I think it's, it's cool to see Jesus also has that experience. There's a, there's a passage I just kept thinking about when I was reading it this week. 
from Hebrews 12, a passage you guys are probably familiar with, right? That we find freedom from sin in faith by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We love that passage. But have we ever thought, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? When he's on the cross, what is he looking to that's giving him the joy of all things to have as he's going through this? Because it's not guilt, right? If God was motivating Jesus by guilt, then Jesus' joy would have been vindication. That at his death, everybody would go, oh, we were wrong, right? Jesus is not on the cross going, suckers, I told you so. That's not a joy that carries you through the experience of getting killed on a cross. Likewise, if God was motivating Christ by pride, his joy would have been reward. Man, man, I know I'm dying now, but I know what's coming next. It, that reward of, oh, look at how good I've been. Look at what I'm, I'm coming home, God. I know what I'm getting. Is that really what, what would give you joy to the point of being persecuted, beaten, whipped, slandered? disgraced, killed. I sure hope not. I know for me that would not be good enough. It might feel good for a second. But we see the joy of Christ is that he is going to be with the Father again. The context of Hebrews 10, Christ is the high priest who made it possible for us to be with God. Hebrews 11, people enduring trials by the hope of their faith, being with God. Guys, Christ's joy was being reunited with the Father. And being with God was such a strong motivation that God was able to accomplish his kingdom work in Christ. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. There's a lot of motivations we do things out of our faith. But there's only one that actually gives you joy in the midst of what you're going through. And so I want us to just take a second as we close this morning. There may be somewhere in your, your faith journey where you're feeling guilt or where you're feeling pride. And I want you to know that those are not of God today, okay? Guilt paralyzes because it makes our works seem bigger than God. When you feel guilty over something that you've done, or guilty as in, man, I'm just trying to avoid doing the wrong thing, it makes your works seem larger than God's. Guilt is not a motivator. Guilt paralyzes. So you may need to just take a second as we pray this morning and call out where do you see guilt in your faith, but also pride. Pride certainly moves us, okay? But not necessarily where God is trying to go. And that one, it's a little harder to spot pride. You may just need to ask the Spirit, okay, show me, show me where I may, may have some of that warming in. But as we do that, and I'm going to be quiet for a second, let you all just have a moment to pray. How do we remove the guilt and the pride? You can't. Because what we're seeing here is that you cannot remove these things on your own. Just as Christ, we are crying out to God's presence saying, God, I want to be with you.
that will get rid of the guilt. That will get rid of the pride. Let's take a minute to do that together, and then I'll close. And I'll open us up with saying, God, show us today where do we feel guilt and where do we feel pride. Because we see these things are not from you. They're not things that you've given us to push us to do more, to grow into your likeness and your kingdom. Father, what is very clear is that when we desire to be with you, you take that desire and you run with it. Father, may we take a second to call it to you, whatever guilt, whatever pride we feel like we have today. Thou great and only God, thou hast made summer and winter, day and night. Each of these revolutions serves our welfare and is full of thy care and kindness. Thy bounty is seen in the relations that train us, the laws that defend us, the homes that shelter us, the food that builds us, the raiment that comforts us, the continuance of our health, our members, our senses, understanding, our memory, our affection, our will. But as stars fade before the rising sun, thou hast eclipsed all these benefits in the wisdom and the grace that purposed redemption by Jesus thy son. Blessed be thy mercy that laid help on one that is mighty and willing, one that is able to save to the uttermost. Make us deeply sensible of our need of his saving grace, of the blood that cleanses, of the rest he has promised, and impute to us that righteousness which justifies the guilty, gives them a title to eternal life and possession of the Spirit. May we love the freeness of your salvation and joy in its holiness. May give us, Father, faith to grasp thy promises that are our hope, that provide for every exigency and prevent every evil. Keep our hearts from straying after forbidden pleasures, Lord, and may thy will bind all of our wishes to yours. Let us live out of the world as to its spirit, its maxim, its manners, but live in it as the sphere of our action and our usefulness. May we be alive to every call of duty, accepting without question thy determination of our circumstances and our service. Forgive us of our guilt, Lord. Forgive us of our pride. We want to be with you today. In your name we pray. Amen.